Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Matthew chapter 19, beginning in the first verse. The word of the Lord reads this way. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not men separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and then send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed them to divorce their wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. This is the word of the Lord. The pastor and the author, John Piper, once wrote, Marriage is meant to, by God to put the gospel reality on display in the world. That's why we are married. That's why all married people are married, even when they don't know and embrace the gospel. Um, we're glad to have you back here uh, for part two of our series um, titled Saving a Generation. And I do realize that it's a dramatic title. I do realize that it's a dramatic video intro with dramatic music, but there's a reason for that. It's a dramatic subject. It's an important subject. As we know, that the world has changed. And as it's been said before, that we are one generation away from Christianity becoming extinct. That the church in the Western world, especially in the United States, is in decline In fact, last week we explored the validity of this statement. And what we discovered is 75% of Americans, three-quarters of Americans actually profess to be Christian, while about 31% of Americans actually practice their faith. And about 18% of Americans actually have a biblical worldview, which means here in America we talk the talk, but we don't necessarily walk the walk. And if you... If that were uh, by itself, if that statistic were, were not enough to give you a pause for concern, every generation, including elders and baby boomers and generation Xers and millennials, all of those generations typically, typically have a 6% part of their population who profess to be atheists, people who outright deny that God exists. But in this next generation, Generation Z... People born between 1999 and 2015 has doubled that figure because 13% of this new generation are already atheists. 13% of a generation that's not even fully grown up yet has already rejected God. And this is a staggering trend with staggering implications because this generation will soon come into its own. This generation will begin to wield power in the world. They will take their place in the universities. They will take their place in the workforce. They will take their place in the voting booth. And they will certainly take their places in in, in positions of influence throughout our culture. 
And one day soon, they will begin to raise up a new generation of their own. A generation that may have very little at all to do with Christ. But what we, what we need to realize is that we're, not, that, that we're talking about your children. We're talking about my children. We're talking about our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. You see, we're not talking about this nebulous group of people called they out there some point in the future. We're talking about people that we know or will know. We're not talking about people who, who don't mean anything to us. We're talking about people that are important to us and will be important to us. People that you're going to care about will be blind to the hope of Christ. And so we ask the question, how did we get here? How did we get to this place? And as we talked about, really, it's a perfect storm in history. A perfect storm of circumstances, and we just identified four of them. The first one is the church growth movement in the 20th century. The, tw- the, the, the church growth, growth movement, though it had good intentions, really began to focus on numerical growth in the church rather than actual discipleship. It became about, about a philosophy of getting people in seats and attracting people to the church regardless of what you had to do rather than training people up theologically and making disciples. And as a result, the church became anemic and theologically weak. A church full of nominal Christians who began to buy into things that aren't even biblical. The second um, circumstance is, is, is our culture as a whole has bought into the, the, the philosophy of materialism. Materialism is this idea that all there is is the, real, the natural world around us, which means the only thing you can really believe is what you can prove and test scientifically and empirically. Third is the promotion of and the rise of anti-authoritarian attitudes. This next generation has been taught to respect no one, regardless of who they are. They're being taught to, 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 to respect no one, especially if they have any authority in their lives. And, and finally, the most profound historical event is the rise of the digital age. Digital technology has changed the entire world in ways that we can't even fully appreciate yet. And the effects of these changes in the lives of our children will not even be known for generations to come. But all of these things have come together to produce a new generation that is really theologically weak and biblically illiterate. But worse, they're absorbing vast amounts of information, more information than any generation before it that is unfiltered. And in, in, in a large part, this information is contrary and even contradictory and hostile to the Christian faith. And the results have been catastrophic. And so we ask the important question, what can we do? Which is really the point of this entire series. How can we get involved? How can we turn the tide in this generation? Because the problem is big. It's a gigantic problem, a problem that will continue to grow and a problem that is huge and will have gigantic implications in our world for years to come. And what we discovered is we're not going to fix this. We're not going to solve this problem by simply working out there. Yes, there's a lot of work to do out there, but we're not going to fix this problem by focusing all of our attention out there. We're going to save this generation by doing what the Bible calls us to do, to make disciples, to make Christ followers, to help people actually come to faith in Jesus Christ, and then to teach them and train them how to, to walk with him and follow him. And the best place for us to make disciples is right here in our home, in the sphere of our greatest influence. 
Yes, we need to get to work out there and make disciples of the nations, but we first need to make disciples at home. We need to make disciples out of our children. We need to make disciples out of our spouses and our parents and our neighbors and our co-workers and even our classmates. We need to make disciples in all the circles of our influence. That's how we're going to save this next generation is by beginning at home. And the foundation of all of this, as we talked about, is the gospel. Because, brothers and sisters, we don't have enough power within us to fix this on our own. This is a gigantic problem that's going to require more than what we're able to bring to the table. This is a problem that's going to require a supernatural solution, which is exactly what the gospel is. Paul tells us the gospel is the power of God to salvation. To anyone who believes, the gospel is the supernatural power of God for salvation to save anyone, be it the individual or an entire generation. And if we're going to have any hope at all of reaching this next generation and saving them, then we need the supernatural power of the gospel. We need God to work the gospel through our lives, which means, as we talked about last week, if we're going to do our part, we need to take responsibility and master the gospel. We need to master the gospel, which means we need to learn it. We need to know it. We need to rehearse it. We need to preach it. And we need to live the gospel. We need to know it intimately. We need to share it regularly. And we need to live it out daily in our lives. And that right there is a quick review of what we talked about to start this series. It's the introduction And if you missed last week, I would certainly encourage you to to, to spend some time this week going to SoundCloud or our website and listen there because it's the foundation of everything we're going to talk about today and the rest uh, of this series. And the address to both of those uh, pages is in your bulletin. But building on what we have already known, what we've already learned, the foundation of all that we're going to do, the foundation of how we're going to reach this next generation is the gospel. All right. It is the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to save. And, and so it is by knowing the gospel, it is going to be about the sharing the gospel, and it's especially living the gospel. Because if there's anything that you can do that will make the biggest impact on those in your circle of influence, is to live out the gospel. The way that you're going to impact those closest to you, the biggest possible way is to make your life consistent with the gospel message. That your life is a representation of the gospel itself. That's why Jesus said, let your light shine before others. So they may see your, what? Good works. The way you live your life and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So they can see the gospel in your life. That way they can know That there is a God, that he is real, and they can glorify him in their life. We need to live out the principles of the gospel. Or better said, we need to model the gospel. We need to model for those around us what the gospel looks like in live action. We need to model the way. Because hear me on this. If we're not modeling the gospel for those people in the sphere of your influence... If you're not modeling the gospel for your family and your friends, you are modeling something else. Because you're always modeling something. It might be selfishness. It might be 
dishonesty. It might be kindness. It might be generosity. It might be the fact that you're a hard worker. It might be greed. It might be arrogance. But make no mistake, whatever it is, you're always modeling something. You are being observed more often than you might realize. People in your sphere of influence are always looking at your life and you're modeling something. You're demonstrating to those people around you. So if you're going to have an impact in this world, if you're going to have an impact on this next generation and those around you in a God-honoring way, right? It's going to Im- if we're going to impact this next generation so they don't become completely disconnected from Christ, then we absolutely need to be deliberately and intentionally modeling the gospel. And there are many ways that we can model the gospel. There's lots of ways to model the gospel. And we're going to talk about that over the next couple, several weeks. That's really kind of the application part of what we're going to talk about. Uh, but today and next week, we're going to talk about perhaps the most influential way and probably the most important way you can model the gospel. And that is through the institution of marriage. The institution of marriage is one of the most important and vital ways to model the gospel. Because marriage, whether you realize it or not, is, it, is a visible picture of the gospel in action. Marriage is a visible picture of the gospel in action. In fact, John Piper is what he says. Marriage is meant by God to put the gospel reality on display in the world. That is why we are married. That is why all married people are married. Even when they don't know. Even when they don't know and embrace this gospel. Marriage is supposed to be the gospel in action. People are supposed to look at husbands and wives and see this relationship of God and the church. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, Therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is a living breathing picture of the gospel. Marriage is one of the most important models of the gospel because much of what can be learned about who God is and and, and how he relates to people and how he loves his people and how he sacrifices for his people, much of what can be learned about God is through the example lived out in the institution of marriage. That's why biblical marriage has such such wide-reaching implications, especially in the area of faith. For every generation. And this is not just stuff that preachers say to defend marriage. It's, it's the facts. This is what, what the data and the research bear out. Did you know that, that marriage has a direct implication, a direct impact on the faith of the very next generation? Studies show that 67% of children who grow up in, with married parents grow up to profess faith. While 50% of children of divorced parents will profess faith as adults. And nearly 34% of children with married parents will grow up to attend church regularly, while about 25% of those from divorced parents will. This is a dramatic and measurable difference. Marriage has a profound impact on the faith of the next generation. Marriage is a supernatural picture of the gospel. 
It is a supernatural model of the relationship between God and man. And its influence isn't just limited to to faith in the next generation. Marriage, because it is supernatural, influences every facet of life. In fact, let's look at the data. 12% of children married in in married homes live in poverty, while 44% of children um, who live in single homes. Children who who live in single-parent homes have a dramatically higher risk of alcohol and substance abuse. Children who live in single-parent households are substantially more likely to, to face externalizing and internalizing behavior problems. Children who live in single-parent households are nine times as likely to drop out of school and 20 times as likely to commit crime and be jailed. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, you can sit and do just a little bit of research and cite study after study after study. The, the facts are still the same. And the fact is this. Children whose parents are still married grow up physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually healthier than their counterparts. That's just the facts. All of the data points to that. The institution of marriage has a huge impact on every facet of life in a child's life. Marriage has far-reaching implications for every single generation. Is there any wonder why Jesus was such a staunch defender of the institution of marriage? In fact, turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to begin in verse 1. And it says, Now when Jesus had finished saying, finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him and asked, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now let me just give you a little bit of background here. Okay, Jesus' ministry on the earth is about to reach its climax. He is healing people. He's performing miracles. Right, he's fed people, uh, you know, with a couple of fish and and bread, right? And, and the Pharisees are seeing how popular Jesus is because everywhere he goes, crowds are following him, and and the Pharisees are really worried about their political influence, and they just do not want to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and so they try to find ways to test him and trap him and to trip him up with the law, and so they ask him, you know, really, you know difficult, controversial questions to try to catch him in an inconsistency because if Jesus denies the law, if he, can, if he contradicts the law, then he can't rightfully claim to be the son of God. And so in this particular instance, they come to ask Jesus about the issue of divorce because there was a huge debate about whether or not a husband could divorce his wife for any reason, basically. Now, this is important because what this tells us is that this controversy surrounding biblical marriage isn't new, right? People have been fighting for and struggling over biblical marriage for thousands of years. Marriage has always been a hot topic. And so all the controversy surrounding marriage and divorce and, and what marriage actually is, is not a recent development. It's, it's practically as old as mankind is. And, and so the first thing that we need to understand is that marriage has always been an issue in every culture, which means <clears throat> the idea of, of marriage isn't a recent cultural issue. Because one of the things that people will say all the time when they want to redefine marriage is that, well, you know, the biblical marriage really needs to change in light of culture because marriage comes from a different time and a place and a different culture. 
Biblical marriage has always been met with resistance in every single culture. Every culture has sought to tear down marriage in some form. Every single culture has sought to to take away the authority of marriage. Why? Because marriage is a picture of the gospel. The enemy will do anything to get in the way of the gospel. The enemy will do anything to remove the credibility of the gospel. If marriage is a picture of the gospel, he will do whatever he has to to destroy it. Every culture from the beginning of time has tried to change and redefine what marriage is and how it works because it is a picture of the gospel. And this and during this time period that Jesus is in is no exception. In fact, the debate over marriage at this point in history was centered on two rabbinical schools of thought and all of this was about the legal reasons why a man should be able to divorce his wife. And the whole controversy, every single bit of the controversy, is centered on the definition of one word. I mean, we live in a culture that's always redefining words. It's nothing new. The whole controversy centered on the the, the definition of one word in the Mosaic Law. And it's the, the word indecency. It says a man could only divorce his wife for indecency. And the conservative school of thought said that was led by the rabbi Shammai said that indecency meant unchastity, I mean, unchastity and unfaithfulness or sexual immorality in any form. That had been the understanding from the time of Moses is that was what indecency meant. But other rabbis trying to adapt to the culture and trying to change and reinterpret things trying to use a different cultural lens, had been trying to interpret the word indecent different. In fact, the liberal school led by Rabbi Hillel said that the true that it is true that man can only leave his wife for indecency, but they just disagree with what indecency meant. In fact, they didn't believe that indecency was limited to marital unfaithfulness. They believed that, that indecency um, included things like a wife spoiling a husband's dish. Meaning that, that, that a husband could literally divorce his wife because she burned his dinner. Because that's, by definition, indecency. And, and, and here's the thing. It didn't even stop there. Right? This is the liberal school of thought, but it didn't stop there. Because this is what liberalism does. It moves from, from one extreme to the next. It went on to say, then the next thing that it said was another rabbi in the same school of thought continued by redefining it and said, even if he found another fairer or prettier than she, he could divorce his wife for indecency. So let me tell you what this means. What this means is if a man found another woman more beautiful than his wife, he could leave his wife because she was now indecent to him. Okay, now we, we shake our heads and we go, that's just crazy, but it's no crazier than what people say today. Well, we're getting a divorce because I just don't love my wife anymore. I, 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 just, I just don't feel love for my wife anymore. Or how about, you know what? I'm just, I'm just not happy. And I just deserve to be happy. And there's no reason for me to stand in marriage if I'm not happy, so I'm leaving them. All right? You know, well, you know, the kids are mostly grown up, and you know, they understand. So I'm ready for something new. All right? I'm ready for a new chapter in my life, so I'm leaving you know, people, 
you know, really weren't never meant to live in a lifelong monogamous relationship. I mean, people live longer than they ever have before. And so it's just unnatural for people to stay committed to the same person for their entire life. It's just unreasonable for people to live that way. That's what they say. That's how it's been redefined today. It's no different than, you know, you can leave your wife for someone prettier because she's now indecent. You see, this, the controversies surrounding marriage are not anything new. It's as old as time. And so these men, they come to Jesus and they're, they're, they're bringing this controversy and they say, well, what do you say, Rabbi? Can a man divorce his wife for any reason? But notice how Jesus answers the question. He doesn't, he doesn't delve into the debate. He doesn't delve into the conversation. He doesn't talk about what Rabbi Hillel said or what Rabbi Shammai said. He bypasses all of that and goes right to the beginning. He goes all the way back to where marriage starts. He doesn't start with culture. He doesn't start with tradition. He doesn't start with people's emotions or feelings. He goes all the way back to the beginning and he starts with God, the creator of marriage itself. And he answered, have you not read? Now, that's something I want you to like pay attention to. Have you not read? Even Jesus himself turns to the Bible, to scripture for the answers to the questions. See, when people want to say, well, Jesus didn't really like affirm the authority of, of scripture, he does it all the time. And here's another example of it. When Jesus wanted to clarify the truth, he turned to the scriptures. He said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, there's a couple of things I really want you to pay attention to here. Okay? And the first thing we need to understand is that marriage, where it came from, marriage is not something that sprang up from some human tradition. Right? This is not a human cultural you know, adaptation. Marriage was created by God. Marriage was designed and created by God himself for a purpose. God created mankind as a part of his created order. And as such, he was created for marriage. He was designed biologically and spiritually for marriage. And this isn't something that, that, that someone, something that God just created after a bunch of people began to exist. He didn't like create people and suddenly they're running around, kind of running amok and getting themselves in trouble thinking, I need to organize this mess. Right? He created marriage from the very beginning. From the very first couple. You see, marriage didn't come from community. Community comes from marriage. The foundation of every community, the foundation of every town, the foundation of every state, the foundation of every nation, the foundation of, of civilization itself is the marriage union. Before God created any other institution, before there was anything else that existed, before God created any communities or community identities, at the beginning, he created the institution of marriage. And I want you to notice the language here. It says, he made them, he created them, male and female, and said, therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And notice, so they are no longer Two, but one flesh. <clears throat> what we need to embrace here is that, and what we need to understand is that God created marriage from the very beginning to be 
a supernatural union between a man and a woman. I want you to notice the language here. Jesus is not just talking about intercourse here. He's talking about something deeper. You don't just, he doesn't just say the two will become one flesh and leave it there. He clarifies it and says they are no longer two, but have, but they are one, right? So this is not just a change in their physical attitudes. There's a change in their very being. They're no longer two. They are now one. They're no longer individuals. They're no longer separate. They're no longer unconnected. They are united permanently. They're connected forever. They leave behind their singleness and become forever a unified whole. One. And that's not just sexually, but spiritually. They share a singular spiritual identity together in Christ. Two opposites, complementary in their nature, becoming together to make a brand new whole. It's no longer I and me, it is us and we. When a man and his woman get married, there is a spiritual transformation that takes place in their lives. It's a transformation every bit as real as the transformation of a new birth. See, the Bible talks lots about spiritual realities that happen to us that we cannot presently see. Things that happen that we can't see in the world around us, but we still know that them to be true. Jesus says, you must be born again. You will not see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. Paul says, you need to be in Christ. He also says that Christ needs to be in you. Paul says that we, are, we have been baptized into his death. We've been raised with Christ to new life. He even went so far to say that we are already seated in the heavenly places with Christ. See, these are things that, that, that we can't see with a naked eye, but Christians, we don't, we, we don't doubt them. We believe them. We depend on them. But when someone, but for some reason, people lose their theological and spiritual minds when it comes to marriage. As if the words of Jesus here aren't as authoritative as, as his words in other places. He said, Jesus said they were created male and female, clearly two genders. Clearly physical opposites created for a physical and spiritual union. And then he says, a man will leave his father and mother and the two will not only be physically joined at, at, at the, the consummation of marriage, but they will be spiritually linked together as one indivisible unit. And this unit, right, is not prescribed. This unit is not prescribed for a man and multiple wives, Okay? This unit is not prescribed for a woman and, and multiple husbands, though, that that is a thing today. Right? This, this, this is not prescribed for, for two women. This is not prescribed for two men. Marriage is a supernatural union between a man and a woman in which all of society is built and depends. And it's the picture of the deeper reality of our relationship with Christ. It's a picture of a relationship with Christ in the church. The spiritual connection in marriage is a picture of the gospel itself. It's a picture of the supernatural connection between you and Jesus. And because of that, marriage is simply so much more than just two people coming together to do a life together. 
Marriage is so much more than people satisfying their sexual appetites together. It's more than ceremonies. It's more than vows. Marriage is a radically sacred doctrine to God. It is is a, a radically sacred institution to God. And because that God created marriage to be a permanent, unbreakable bond between a husband and a wife. God created marriage to be a permanent, lifelong, through thick and thin, unbreakable bond. Notice what he says. What therefore God has joined together. Therefore what God has joined together, let let not man separate. Marriage is not the work of man. Marriage is not the work of people. It's not the work of governmental agencies. Marriage is the work of God himself. And because of it, and because it's God's design, and because it's God's will, and because it's God's work, he says, let no one take it apart, not by divorce, or polygamy, or polyandry, or polyamory, or shacking up, or adultery, or by same-sex unions, or the redefinition of genders, or abandonment. Marriage always has been and always will be a permanent bond, a supernatural union between a man and a woman. And, and, and this was an issue 2,000 years ago, just like today. But notice how, Jesus, how they respond to Jesus. He tells them, he goes right back to the, to the source, to the authority, and then they, they push back and they say to him, oh, why did Moses command uh, one to give certificates of divorce and, and, you know, and send her away or in other words well then why did he make it legal right he said you know because of the hardness of their he and he says to them he goes because the hardness of your hearts right because the hardness of your hearts moses allowed you to divorce your wife but it wasn't that way from the beginning you see jesus he really cuts the red the quick because the pharisees are responding with this really lame argument well it's legal Moses permitted it, right? The law says we can do it, which is the same argument we hear over and over and over again for many things in our culture. But let's be really clear. I think we all know this, right? That just because something's legal doesn't mean that, that it's good. Just because something's legal doesn't mean it's right. Doesn't, because something's legal doesn't mean that it's God-honoring. Like there won't be any, any consequences, I mean, it's perfectly legal for you to be drunk every single day. You can do that if you want to, right? Drink as much alcohol as you want to, as long as you have the money to pay for it. There's nothing illegal about it. As long as you don't go, like, knocking people around or driving around town, you can be as drunk as you want to every single day. There's not a law against that. There's no prohibition against it. But we know that God has clearly said, do not be intoxicated. We know that's not what God wants for us. We know that this is not what, the way we're supposed to live, Right? It's perfectly legal for people to indulge in online shopping and maxing out all their credit cards, right? And then refinancing their homes so they have enough money to go buy more stuff and then go into debt so they can barely pay their bills, right? People do it all the time. It's perfectly legal. But God makes it really, really clear you're not supposed to be in debt, that you're not, that you're supposed to be responsible with your money, that you're supposed to be a good steward of your stuff. It's perfectly legal, but you know you shouldn't do that. It's perfectly legal for you to gossip and talk trash about people. I mean, you can say whatever ugly things you want to about people. You can spread rumors. You can even post nasty things about them on, on Facebook and social media. 
But no one, but no one here would, would, would say that that's God honoring. That's what God wants me to do. It's perfectly legal for you to do lots of things. It's perfectly legal for people to, to get high on marijuana recreationally. But the Bible clearly says, do not be intoxicated. It's perfectly legal for people to have, same, to have as many sexual partners as they want to. There's no law that says that you have to be married or that you can't sleep around. But we all know that God has said something about all of this. It doesn't make it right. So they say it's legal. But just because something's legal doesn't mean it's right. But Jesus didn't even argue with him there. He doesn't even say it. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's right. He actually just goes right past it and he gets to the root of the issue. He says, it's because of the hardness of your heart that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. You see, the root of the issue is not the law. The root of any issue that we have is not the law. The root of the issue is the hardness of, of, of man's heart. Marriage is rejected. Marriage is compromised. Marriage is redefined and changed, not because of, of the law and, and, and not because of, of changes in our cultural understanding, but because of man's heart is hard. That's the issue. Man's heart is hardened to the will of God. It always has been. You see, this whole debate about marriage then and now has nothing to do with love or happiness or fulfillment or cultural you know, changes or individual rights. It has everything to do with the hardness of our hearts. We want to redefine marriage because our hearts are hardened to the will of God. You see, the rejection of marriage and the redefining of marriage is like everything else. It's a gospel issue. At the core of the issue is our hearts are... are our hardened hearts towards God. We were born that way. We're by nature children of wrath. Why? Our hearts are hardened towards God. That's why salvation is a supernatural work of God's grace. We couldn't make God love us. We're nature, by our nature hardened to God. We had hearts of stone, the Bible says, and God removes them and gives us hearts of flesh. That's exactly what God says. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you, within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. It's a miracle transformation that God wrought in our lives. And so the, the rejection of God's plan for marriage, just like ours today, at its core, is about the hardness of mankind's heart. Mankind rejects the, God's plan for marriage because in the hardness of his heart, his love for his sin is greater than his love for God. That's what it is. When we love something more than we love God, our hearts are hardened. And this is an area that many people are very hard. The enemy brings all kinds of temptations here too because he knows this is an effective, an effective way to trip people up. He brings all kinds of temptations and rationalities to harden us. You know, you really, you really should be happy in your marriage. I mean, really, you, there's no sense you being married if you're not happy, right? You know, you're supposed to be completely fulfilled physically, all the time in your marriage. And so if you're not, if your partner's not like taking care of that, if maybe there's just, you know, too, too, too big a time span for, for that to happen, then maybe it's time for you to move on and be someone that can take care of that. Because you should be fulfilled all the time. You know, maybe you've just fallen out of love and, and God would not want you to be married to someone you're not in love with. I mean, he just wouldn't want that to happen. 
Now, before you say, well, Sherman, you still don't understand my situation. Let me just ask you a question. Would it be okay with you if Jesus said to you, you know what? You're just too much trouble. I can't keep putting up with you. This every day you've fallen down, making a mess of your life. I'm, I'm done. I, 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 I can't do it anymore. You know what? I'm sick and tired of our relationship being so one-sided. I do everything for you, right? You don't do anything for me except sin and blaspheme me. And, you know. So guess what? You're on your own. Would that be okay with you? No. Why is it not okay? Because Jesus made a promise. He made a promise to save us. He made a promise to never leave us or forsake us. He made a promise to come back for us. And I don't know about you, but I'm depending on that promise. All of my hope is wrapped up in that promise. I am desperately depending on Jesus, keeping that promise. And Christian, marriage is supposed to be a picture of that promise. God created marriage to be a supernatural, permanent, unbreakable union between a husband and a wife. And that is his plan. And that is his plan for this union. It is his plan for this marriage to be a living model of the gospel that we are to hope in. Now you might ask then, right? What does this have to do with saving the next generation? Everything. You see... It's in marriage that we, as Christ followers, can actually live out what the gospel looks like. You see, at the foundation of the gospel is sacrificial love. What we need to understand is that God did not just love you. He loved you enough to sacrifice for you. And he sacrificed greatly for you. Paul says that you were bought with a price. You were redeemed at a high cost. Jesus, the son of God, came to live perfectly in this world. And then he was tortured. And he suffocated and died on a cross. Not for something he did. For something you did. He sacrificed himself for us. God so loved the world. That what? He did what in love people do. He gave And he gave what was most precious to him. He gave his beloved son who himself gave his very life for those he loves. So that what? So that we can believe in him and not perish but have eternal life. God sacrificed in an unimaginable way to set us free. Jesus' blood was poured out for our sin. God was pleased to crush his own son for our sake. And the father turned his back on his own beloved son for us the gospel is all about sacrificial love and so is marriage being married is to sacrifice you sacrifice your complete independence you sacrifice your individual identity you sacrifice getting your way all the time and if you're a husband you sacrifice the right to win an argument i can't even get a name in here huh (laughs) Marriage is about sacrificial love. And sometimes the sacrifices are really small. Like not getting to watch what you want on TV. Sometimes they're very big. Like living with someone who has depression. Or helping to get a second job so someone can go to school. Or rushing home to 
help make sure the laundry gets done? Or how about taking care of your invalid spouse who will never get better because you committed to them? Sacrificial love is the foundation of marriage because it's the foundation of the gospel. Second, marriage, like the gospel, is about covenant keeping. The gospel, God makes a promise. If you will believe in him and trust in him alone for your salvation, he will wash away all of your sins. He will clothe you in Christ's robes of righteousness. He will give you the power and the strength to begin progressively overcoming the sin in your life. And one day he's going to come back for you and he's going to take you home to live with him forever and ever and ever and ever. The gospel is about a promise and God keeping his promises. And that promise was sealed with the blood of Jesus Christ. And your marriage is the same. It is a covenant. It's supposed to be an immutable, unbreakable promise. Your, your spouse is supposed to be able to depend on you to be there no matter what happens. And you're supposed to be able to depend on your spouse no matter what happens. And your standard for keeping that promise is not other people. It's not what's legal. It's not what's culturally acceptable. Your standard is God. You're, you're to be together no matter what. In fact, Jesus said the only reason that it's permissible to divorce, he says, is marital infidelity. Now, I would, I would argue from Scripture, right, that physical abuse would certainly fall in there somewhere. I don't see wives and children living in danger is a biblical mandate. But the reality is the only deal breaker are those that are allowed. Everything else you're supposed to work through. You're supposed to work through misunderstandings. You're supposed to work through um, times when you're not getting your physical needs met all the time. You're supposed to work through, he ain't helping me around the house at all. You're supposed to work through, man, she just spends all the money, right? You're supposed to work through the way he makes, the way he chooses food makes me want to punch him in the throat. That's more common than you might think, by the way. So, Marriage is about keeping your promise. And that is only possible because marriage, like the gospel, is about grace, mercy, and forgiveness. If you're married, you need to be committed to walking in grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Just like God is for you. Marriage requires all three. Grace, mercy, and forgiveness in massive, massive quantities. You see, grace is you getting what you don't deserve. Sometimes I can be a jerk to my wife. I don't even think about it. It just happens, right? But my wife will still hug me and and kiss me, though I don't deserve it. Right? That is grace. She gives me what I don't deserve. God's grace... For me, gave me a way to be saved. I don't deserve it, but he gave it to me. Mercy is the other, the opposite. It's not getting what you do deserve. Sometimes when I am a jerk to my wife, she doesn't throat punch me, right? And she doesn't, and she doesn't make me sleep on the couch, right? And she doesn't shave off my eyebrows while I'm sleeping. Though I probably deserve that from time to time, right? I don't get what I deserve, And God, in his mercy, doesn't send me to hell, something I absolutely do deserve. And then forgiveness, then, is letting go of debts. 
is letting go of something that's owed to you. If my wife kept a permanent record of all the times I've been a jerk to her, man, I'd be in, in, in really bad trouble, right? right? She doesn't hold on to all those things. She doesn't judge me by what I did five years ago. She didn't hold it over my head, right? And, 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 and she, she, makes, she doesn't make me pay for it. She, she lets it go because it's over. It doesn't exist anymore. That's what forgiveness is. And God has forgiven my sins through Jesus Christ and says, my sins have been cast as far from me as the east is from the west. And what you need to know is if you go east and keep going east, you'll never go west. It's kind of the picture. You see, the marriage is a beautiful living picture of the model of the gospel. It is through the institution of marriage that this next generation and every other generation, children and young people and other adults can see the gospel being lived out. Marriage is a real tangible model of the gospel that has a supernatural effect. It has a supernatural effect on your home and in your neighborhoods and in your schools and in your workplace and your community. Marriage has the power to influence children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, parents, friends, co-workers, and neighbors. Marriage is a supernatural union between a man and a woman that demonstrates that demonstrates the supernatural saving power of the gospel for all the world to see. And if we're going to save this generation, we must save the institution of marriage as God designed it. Because without it, this generation is lost without it. Mark my words, because the data proves it. So what do we do? How, how do we then apply this? How do we, we do something about this in our own lives? Now that we know this, then what do we do with it? It's really the question. Well, first of all, if you're married, you need to stand up for your marriage. You need to decide in your heart that you're going to do whatever it takes to walk in grace, to walk in mercy, to walk in forgiveness, that you're going to keep your promises and you're going to love sacrificially in order to stay married. And next week, we're going to spend some time talking more about that. We're going to get really, really practical next week. Second, whether you're married or you're not married, whether you're young or you're old, you need to stand up for other people's marriages. You need to decide that it's that right now, here in this place, you're going to stand up and protect the marriages of other people, especially those in, the, in your circle of influence. And what that means is when your best bud at work says he's, he's leaving his wife for some other girl, you don't have the right to say, that's not my business. What you need to do is you need to tell him, I love you. I care about you deeply. You're my best friend, but what you're doing is way over the line wrong. And you're sacrificing your family. And, you're gonna, and, and your family's going to experience great tribulation because of it. And more than that, you're sacrificing this next generation. You need to stand up for the marriages in your circle of influence. Which means all those in your relationships, your coworkers, your friends. It might even be your adult children. You might have to stand up and t- say to your adult kids, it's not okay. It's not okay. They might not like you for it. Guess what? There's times in your life when your kids didn't like you to begin with, right? Besides, just even when, you're, when your kids are adults, your first job is still to be their parent, right? Okay, just we know that. We need to stand up for marriage in every possible turn. And that, and that includes at work, at school, and even how you vote. We all as individuals 
as a church must stand up for, for, for marriage. And finally, the third thing is we embrace the truth about marriage. We need to embrace it. Marriage is a supernatural union of a man and a woman, a lifetime union, and it's God's plan and model of the gospel. And I want you to know I understand wholeheartedly that this truth will put you at odds with people. This will put you at odds with people in the world around you. And some of them might even be really, really close to you. And here's the thing. You're not alone. This truth has put me at odds with people in my own family. There are people that I know and care about deeply and love that, that my heart like, really is deeply attached to. Right? That, that, that there's a tension because of this. But let me just tell you that, that what true love really is. True love is telling people the truth even if it's hard to hear. So this generation is not going to be saved because we don't want to hurt their little feelers. Okay? This generation is not going to be saved because we don't want to hurt people's feelings. This generation is not going to be saved because we want them to like us. Church family, the rate of atheism has doubled in one generation, which means a higher percentage of people that you know and people that you love and people you care about will one day step off into eternity and they will be unequipped to meet God face to face in all of his holiness and righteousness and his wrath. And the question you have to ask yourself is, are you okay with them being unprepared that way? Are you okay with that? Or do you love them enough to tell them the truth? Yes, we need to tell people the truth with as much grace and humility and tenderness and compassion that we can possibly muster, but we must tell them the truth nonetheless. Do you love people in this next generation enough to tell them the truth of the gospel? That's the question that we have to answer. And if the answer is yes, then we need to embrace the truth about marriage and we need to be ready to stand up for it in this generation, be it our own marriages or the marriages of other people. It's, a, it's about living the gospel. It's about being a model for all to see. As the old saying goes, your children more attention pay to what you do than what you say. Let me pray for you. Father, let our actions be in alignment with your word. Let how we live be in alignment with what the gospel has to say. Father, don't make our hearts hardened, but don't make us complacent either. Father, help us to walk in this truth. Help us to stand up and defend this truth. Help us, Lord God, to reach this next generation. Help us to, to, help us to, to be living examples of the beautiful relationship that's pictured in the marriage bond. The picture of you and your church, Lord God. It's a mystery. How, do we, how does it exactly work? I don't know. I don't even know how being born again works exactly. I just know that you must be. Father, help us to walk in faith here, knowing that if we will honor the truth, then you will, you will strengthen us. Father, help us to be people who live out the word, doers of the word. Help us to walk out this in our community. Help us to live this out loud for our community. Help us, Lord God, to be involved. Help us to sell out for Jesus today, Lord God. To live the gospel in our lives, to embrace the gospel. Father, help us, Lord God, 
to be people who are committed to your order for family and for communities. And Lord, I pray that you'd strengthen all those who are married here. And and, and Lord, I, I pray right now for those who have had marriages before that have failed, Lord, that, that you would just grant them forgiveness. That, Father, that you, you have grace for all of us, all of us who have even lived through divorces. That you would grant us repentance and move on, Lord, and that we would walk in, in, in the light of your glory. I pray, Father, that you protect this church family supernaturally, Lord God, that you'd raise up a people who are passionate for your name. You'd minister to people and meet their needs in every possible way. Thank you for that, Christ. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.